Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 248. And today we are going to be talking about Mount Everest and the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. And Josh and I were inspired to do this episode after we went on a little date to the museum recently. And we saw... We sound so old. I know. Oh my God. We went to the museum for a date night. We were doing that when we were like That's 18. true. That's true. I can't even lie. We've been well, pretty... We love learning. So <laughs> yes, just go to the, such the place for learning here in Denver. The but Denver. we do love a good uh, IMAX. And we love the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Yeah. Pretty awesome place. Shout out. Anyway, um, we saw an IMAX on this. Well, it's, it's called Everest. So... Yeah. This is actually came out in 1998, so it's actually an old IMAX yeah, film. But it was showing. But it, it, it's interesting because this, like we said, this incident takes place in 1996, and up until this point, this was the single most deadliest day on Everest. Yeah. Um, with the number of climbers that that died, and there's a few that survived that uh, were able to that were actually in the film that we watched because they mm-hmm. went back two years later and they brought an IMAX camera all the way up to the top which was pretty cool Mm -hmm. so the footage in that film is really interesting and they they interview some of the surviving climbers and what it was like and they kind of walk back through the the whole events that that took place that day it is so brutal i give people who do this mad props but i kept leaning over to josh while we were watching and just saying like i just don't get the appeal i mean i do obviously you you get like the recognition and it's it's completing a goal but, well, it's an adrenaline rush too. A lot of people are, you know, seek adventure and yeah, seek that that rush. So why not me? Why not climb the tallest peak in the world? It's crazy what these people go through. I mean, it is absolutely brutal up there. Um, so we'll be getting into all of the details of, you know, how people climb Mount Everest, what goes into the prep, um, the whole process, and then of course the 1996 storm, um, which is yeah, a pretty May wild 10th. story yeah, as well. May, yeah, it's. Oh, I can't even imagine going through what these guys went through and especially losing your buddies along the way. And just the aftermath of this whole thing is absolutely insane. Yeah, it really is a sad story. It's a sad story, but it's also a tale of survival. It is. is. Even when these types of of things happen, it doesn't stop people from Mm -hmm. going back up Mm -hmm. and completing the mission, so to speak, Mm -hmm. which I, I was looking. There's been incidents after the fact that have been more deadly. It's usually avalanches that... Yeah. Um, end up killing people on Everest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a little bit different because this was towards the top of the peak and it was largely related to weather, a freak storm that came in. Right. Uh, but it's it's deadly, dangerous, no matter which way you look at it, no matter how prepared or skilled of a climber you are, there is always a chance that you may not make it up to the top or make it down. And that was the thing that was crazy to me, just watching people climb to the top of Everest to only be up there for, mm-hmm. a f- I think it's like a few minutes. It might even yeah. be like 10 minutes max because there's virtually no oxygen up there. Yeah. You have so, to be quick. Take a picture, climb back down. And that's the then whole you thing. Climb you have to go all down. the way back down. Yeah. And the the crevices. They climb. It's it's insane. So mm-hmm. we thought this one would be interesting. We're obviously, we're a mile higher. So today we're going <laughs> miles higher, literally. To uh, where we ourselves will never go. To where, I mean, we have 14,000 foot peaks here in colorado we're actually are we climbing them no i like the one you can drive to the top <laughs> yeah though. me too you know like i i've Mount done, evans baby i've only done like half a 14er before and even that was brutal as hell and can't it was, you drive to the top of pike's peak or yes. like partially up? yeah pike's peak you can also drive to the top there's a train that can take you up there too mm. 
Oh, that's cool. We should do that. But there's people here in Colorado and people that that's like one of our big tourist attractions that come here and climb all the 14ers. I could never. I'm so afraid of heights. I would never be able to. It's hard, man. It's so hard. I yeah, mean, it's, plus it's just so fun. It's not cool. just like casual hiking trails up to the top. It's no. like scaling rocks and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It gets pretty sketchy. Cold, and, and cold, cold. Very, very cold. But Mount Everest, almost 30,000 feet. So here in Colorado, highest peak is like 14 something. Mm-hmm. We're talking twice that yeah, is what these people insane. do. Insane. It is a really, really crazy story. But before we get into it, there's a couple things I wanted to mention. One, with Higher Love Wellness, I just want to remind everybody we have our sleep collection out. It is really, really good stuff. does not contain melatonin or any of that mm. nasty stuff. This is purely hemp nasty extract. Stuff. Easy there. It's, I mean, melatonin is right for the right, you know, certain mm-hmm. things or whatever. But we use CBN, which is a cannabinoid um, that we basically extract from the plant that has naturally sort of sedating effects to it. Really, really nice. But yeah, also, awesome. we just released CBD soft shoes for dogs. Yep, yep. Many of you were requesting that for quite some time. I know there are people out there who have pets with sensitive teeth or missing teeth, and we wanted to include There's them There's one well. right over there. I was gonna That's say, right. Charlie tested it out. He can break it down with his gums. How many teeth does Charlie have now? Um, I want to say like seven, maybe. Hmm. Six but, or seven. you know, they're big, big old tusks. Can we see the he tusks? He does have some tusks. So it makes up for it. But still, he needs he says, mother. He only likes soft food. Right, right. A lot of dogs don't like the yeah. real crunchy, hard yeah. to, to bite through, which we have the oatmeal biscuits as well. But mm-hmm. these are peanut butter soft chews. Mm-hmm. All of our dogs love and they're, them. Yeah, there's amazing benefits for pets taking CBD too. So Absolutely. We also have your pet friends. bandanas, which is pretty yeah, cool too. Yeah, so go check it do. out. Higherlovewellness.com. Yeah, thanks to everyone who has supported our business. All right. You ready to get into this? Yeah, things? let's just jump right into the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. In 1996, a fast-moving storm trapped climbers high on the mountain and people died. With this experience, exactly, lots of uh, possibility, maybe 30% you can die. At that altitude, there is not enough oxygen for humans to breathe, so vital supplies are used up while the climbers just wait. We thought it was kinder to leave them rather than cause them pain even in a semi-conscious state by dragging them over to where we were. They were basically dead. Nobody can come. That day, it's already late. He has been already one night he spent outside there, and then uh, I already thought when we left, he's going to die. You know, for people that have paid me, it's pretty much my job to, I guess, number one, keep them alive, and um, number two, to do everything we can to get them to the summit. Well, I was as good as dead. Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. It's long been the stuff of legend, a symbol of conquest, suffering, the sublime, both human achievement and the indifference of nature. Mount Everest is actually the British colonial name for the mountain, but it was originally known by its Tibetan name, Chomolangma, which means goddess mother of the world or goddess of the valley. Its Sanskrit name is Sagramata, which literally translates to peak of heaven. The first known summiting of Mount Everest was achieved on May 29, 1953. Even back in the 50s, they're like, we're climbing the tallest mountain in the world. In 1980, Reinhold Messner became the first known person to summit the mountain solo and without supplemental oxygen, which that just blows my mind that people are willing to take up that challenge because you increase your chances of dying tremendously when you don't bring oxygen with you. 
The mountain is located on the border of Nepal and Tibet. The Nepali side is the most popular with mountaineers. Mount Everest's exact elevation is under a little bit of disagreement because of factors like variations in snow level, gravity deviation, and light refraction. In 2020, China and Nepal jointly declared Mount Everest's elevation to be 29,031 feet, or 8,848 meters, and this elevation is widely accepted. For comparison, cruising altitude on you know, your average commercial flight is 33,000 feet. The Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, is 2,716.5 feet. So this is tall. So Sherpa Buddhist monks believe that a goddess lives on Mount Everest. It is the palace and playground of Miolengsima, the goddess of inexhaustible giving. To Sherpas, all humans who visit Everest are only partially welcome guests who have shown up uninvited. The power of this goddess has given the Sherpa people great bounty. The mountain is blessed with her spirit's energy. Sherpas believe that people who pass through the sacred mountain area should be reverent. Climbers should avoid any impure actions or even impure thoughts. Better keep your thoughts clean. And that's because on the mountain, the karmic effects of your actions are magnified. So climbers should be on their best behavior. After all, there are plenty of opportunities for things to go wrong on this expedition. And climbers are at the whims of Mother Nature. Weather can change literally overnight and turn some situations deadly very quickly. Climbers are assisted up the mountain by Sherpas, and the Sherpa people are actually an ethnic minority in Nepal native to this region of the Himalayas. To Sherpas, mountaineering is their livelihood. It's seasonal work, and it pays very well by Nepali standards. According to the government in Nepal, most Sherpa guides earn about $6,000 per expedition. But since there's many different jobs on the mountain, the range is broad, from camp cooks who make about $2,500 to lead guides who make $10,000. The main climbing season is the spring from April to May, with the second half of May being the most popular time to climb. 80% of all Everest ascents happen during this two-week time frame. By spring, the winter winds have blown away a lot of the snow, making the avalanche risk lower. And speaking of avalanche risk, I know that, Josh, you mentioned at the beginning, most deaths happen, you know, because, because of, of avalanches. Right. Um, there was a huge avalanche back in April 15th, 2015. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake created an avalanche directed towards the base camp below. So obviously the snow came flying down the mountain. And once it settled, at least 15 were dead. And this to this day is the deadliest uh, day on Mount Everest. So, and a large amount of the deaths on Everest are these uh, Nepalese Sherpas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just despite the dangers, the fact that they're still so dedicated to mountaineering and continuing to bring people up the mountain is honestly pretty incredible, pretty courageous, if you ask me. Summer is monsoon season, so it's not the best time to climb. The fall is colder and snowier, and the days are shorter, so most climbers prefer spring instead of fall. Spring temperatures at base camp range from 14 to 34 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 13 to negative 17 degrees Fahrenheit at the summit, which that sounds pretty damn cold to me. But if you were to go up there in winter, I'm sure it would be even colder than that. Over 300 people have died trying to climb Everest. An average of five climbers die there every year. Many of these people disappeared and their bodies have never been recovered. 
so about 200 or so bodies still remain on the mountain, and nearly half of those who died, like I said before, are Sherpas. That's what's crazy to me too, is that there's likely just hundreds of bodies Mm -hmm. frozen on the side of, like, you could be climbing up Everest and literally be stepping on somebody's body that's frozen. Like, you could see them too below the ice. Mm -hmm. So creepy. Some climbers attempt Mount Everest as part of their mission to climb to the top of all seven summits, the highest peak in each of these seven continents. Now, as of January of this year, 6,338 people have reached the summit of Mount Everest. And I looked up because I wanted to see who has climbed it the most. And it is this Nepali Sherpa. His name is Kami Rita. And he holds the record for the most ever since to the summit of Everest. He's been 26 times. That is fucking impressive. 26 times he's done this. Wow. And also, it's not cheap. Um, I think the average cost is between like 30,000 to 160,000, which is a huge range, but I think the like average is around 45,000 or something. So it's really become something of rich not only rich people do really. Yeah. Well, those that are dedicated, I guess, you know, people who but I mean, if you're like somebody your who's a big mountaineer, nearing person, like you might yeah. be willing to spend that. Because yeah. the people, think about the people who have the ability to take the time that's required to train yeah. and then scale mm-hmm. these seven summits around the world. I mean, you're, this is like what you do. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Mean, it's almost like a profession. One of the couples that was in the documentary we saw went for their honeymoon. Right. Yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk about that a little bit in this episode, I think. Yes. yes. He was actually on that expedition in 1996 as well. So you want to hike to Mount Everest. Here's what you would have to do. Training to get into the best physical condition possible for Everest takes months or even years. And you're also going to need a lot of built up experience in mountaineering, including peaks like Denali and Aconcagua. And if you have asthma, high blood pressure or poor circulation, it's probably just not a good fit for you. And climbing Mount Everest is not for the broke. Like we just said, it'll cost you tens of thousands of dollars and about two months off work as well, which most people obviously can't do. You'll also need a permit from the government of Nepal to climb Everest, and those permits alone cost $11,000. And imagine all those people that do shell out this money that don't make it to the top. I know, that's crazy. I just, oh, you could go on like a trip to Bali. (laughs) Or more than that. I mean, you'd go on a few trips for $45,000. Seriously. And you'll need to pay for gear, accommodations, food, toiletries, insurance, an expedition company, gratuities, flights to and from Nepal, and any other expenses that may come up along the way. But once you get all that paid for and you're ready to go and you finish training, it's time to set off for Nepal. You'll spend a few days adjusting to the time in Kathmandu before flying to Lukla. From there, climbers make the two-week trek up to the Everest base camp. Base camp is at 17,600 feet. And climbers have to acclimate to the altitude there for weeks. Then finally, it's time to start the trek up to the summit. This takes about 12 days there and back to the base camp. The first part of this journey has climbers trekking 2,000 feet up the Kumbu Icefall, one of the most dangerous parts of the climb. Then climbers have to traverse through four separate camps. Camp 1 is located at 19,500 feet. It has one-third less oxygen than on sea level, and climbers have to acclimate there. Camp 2 sits at 21,000 feet, and this is where climbers have to worry about 
hape, and hase, which are high-altitude pulmonary and cerebral edema, which is where liquid fills the lungs and your brain swells. Both sound horrible. From 22,000 feet to 25,000 feet, the standard route ascends a dangerous ice slope known as the Lhotse Face. Camp 3 sits at 23,500 feet at the foot of the Lhotse Face. Climbers will notice their breathing increases four times as much, but it's still not enough oxygen. Digestion slows or stops, causing the body to start eating itself. Finally, climbers arrive at Camp 4, which sits on the South Call. A call is a pass or depression in a mountain range or ridge. It is the last camp before the summit. It sits at 26,000 feet, or just below the so-called death zone. Lack of oxygen manifests in a variety of symptoms, including delirium and confusion. So when you're up that high, you'll be like, all right, three-fourths of the way there, but mm-hmm. then all these symptoms start setting in, and you, it's not like you can Crazy. take that, you know, that last trek when you're experiencing delirium and yeah, very dangerous. Yeah, that's one part I did not know about climbing Everest. You yeah, like can lose your mind up there. Literally. And there's just there's mul- there's multiple steps too. I never realized that there was like four different camps. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like base camp and then the summit and you just go from one to the next. I didn't realize no, you have to work your way up, man. Because there's all these these risks that you run into. You got to kind of acclimate as you go up. At 8,000 meters or 26,247 feet, climbers reach the death zone. This is where lack of oxygen makes human life inhospitable and conditions can easily get deadly up there. So the death zone sits just above the south call and all of the summit climb takes place in it and climbers must use bottled oxygen to breathe if they're not already acclimatized. I was reading this one article and this guy describes the death zone as running on a treadmill and breathing through a straw. I've heard that before. That sounds torturous. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I can't even picture what that would be like. (laughs) Yeah. So you're exerting as much energy as running on a treadmill, but instead of being able to, you know, really open up those lungs, you're like. And this is why I don't get why people do it. Because you can say you did it. I know, but it's like, it sounds just. I think that's why they do it because it's so brutal. I think that's why. They like the challenge. Yeah. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. That's like the motto. I guess, but. It's like the ultimate challenge to yourself. Ooh, I just doesn't appeal to me, I guess. It just sounds so awful. Not a risk taker. No, definitely not. I like to play it safe for sure. I like to breathe. (laughs) And from there, climbers must travel the path to the summit on a day with ideal conditions, also known as a summit bid day. And summit bids start just after midnight that day, so hikers begin their ascent in the dark. Can you imagine? From the south call, climbers go up 1,500 feet to the point known as the balcony. And from there, they climb another 1,200 feet to the south summit and then another 1,100 feet to the Hillary Step. The Hillary Step is a dangerous climb at 235 vertical feet up to the last benchmark, the summit of Mount Everest. But once climbers make it past there, they're at the summit. If you make it this far, you've officially climbed the top of Mount Everest. And here's some footage from the summit so you can get an idea what this looks like. A view that I will never see in person. Yes, we made it. It is stunning though. Look at that. Literally above the clouds. That's so cool. Oh, wow. It's really cool. 
you're basically like in space. It's like you're not <laughs> I mean, far it's, away. It's the same view you get from an airplane, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, but you can't really see shit from an airplane, let's be honest. Like the well, windows are small depends. and depends. Well, yeah, not, it's not like you as this. But just reminds me of like Oh, like when seeing you're flying all over the, the peaks mountains. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I get it in that sense. It is it's it's magnificent. I mean, you're on top of the world. But you have a it has a different sense of meeting when you've climbed it versus just right. like seeing it from an airplane, right? You're like, yeah, whatever, cool. But when you climb it and you go through all that hard work, mm-hmm. the sense of accomplishment too. You feel alive. Yeah, you feel alive, exactly. So after riding the high of summoning Everest and snapping some pictures, it's eventually time to descend. 1 to 2 p.m. is considered to be the last safe time to start descending in order to make it back to Camp 4 before dark. So if you're attempting to summit, but you haven't reached the top by 2 p.m., you're supposed to turn back, even if you're only 100 or so feet away. But descending is still a very dangerous task, and many people have summited an incredible accomplishment but found it would be their last. One in four who summit don't make it down alive. Here's a clip of some climbers descending the summit, and you can just see just how dangerous this is going down. It's so steep. I almost feel like it's easier to slip and fall and literally slide off of the face of the mountain going down. Makes me want to throw up thinking about that. Some of these little ledges are so steep and narrow that you know they're obviously holding ropes going down it but oh, it's so wild looking i'm so clumsy i would slip and fall and die no for you, sure. you're you're belayed on you i know but harness. what if you you could still slip and like smack your head totally i mean yeah it's very dangerous oh it's so i just couldn't do it it makes me nauseous even looking at it i kept getting nauseous the in the imax drop right there Oh, it's so insane. The older I get to, the more afraid of heights I am. So I'm just like, it's a no for me. Yeah. Another thing that really freaked me out in this IMAX is there are these giant, really deep crevices that they would have to go across and they would literally just throw a ladder down over them, like a silver handyman's ladder and climb across in these huge ice hiking boots. Yeah, they have spikes on them and balance over the top. I I couldn't even look. It is so scary to me. I can't believe people do this. It's like ricketing around and they don't even have it like secured or nailed know, down or anything. They just toss it over. It's wild. It really is. I mean, and if these you people fall, are brave. fall into one of those, you're falling straight through the earth for sure. <laughs> Pretty much. They don't even know how deep a no, lot of them are. No. It's crazy. After descending to base camp, climbers spent a day or so there before hiking back to Lukla and heading home from Kathmandu. Half a century ago, climbing Everest was something that only a handful of world-renowned climbers could do. But in the 1990s, expedition guide companies began to spring up, offering expeditions to foreigners who could pay the hefty fees. In the last 20 years, Everest has seen a nearly 10-time increase in traffic, with more than half of all the you know 10,055 summits coming in the last decade alone. Wow. Because for decades, the governments of Nepal and Tibet denied access to most foreign climbers. So throughout the 80s, access was super limited and they only allowed for one Everest permit per season. Damn. But then in the early 90s, everything changed when they basically realized that there was money to be made by allowing Westerners to climb this thing. And by the mid-2000s, dozen of, dozens of uh, Western guides had set up expedition, expedition companies. And then obviously, from there, traffic grew mm. a ton from like 50 to 60 to 500 plus climbers per year. That's wild. So from 1953 to 1999, there were a little over 1,100 total summits. 
And in the last 20 plus years since, there have been close to 9,000, according wow. to the Himalayan database. Huge um, yeah. spike there. But, you know, Nepal is traditionally known as one of the poorest countries in the world, but it now earns tens of millions of dollars from people climbing Everest and its tourist tourism industry, which is largely driven by these treks, accounts for roughly 10% of its 24 billion GDP. So that's crazy. they're making a lot of money off of... I feel like that's really smart, honestly. And they're mm-hmm. probably like, man, we should have opened this up way yeah. earlier. Maybe they're more worried about the liability and stuff uh, of it in mm-hmm. the past. And, yeah. And it, now they realize yeah. it's, you know, people do dangerous shit all over the world. So mm-hmm. why not here too? Mm-hmm. If you're willing to risk your life and sign the waiver... But obviously, more climbers means more deaths. Yep. Absolutely. And which we'll talk about later, more impact on the environment. Yes. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. Is it worth it? Yeah, we'll have to decide. Which all of this led to the mountain becoming more commercialized. And as a result, some less experienced climbers started to complete the trek. And the dangers due to overcrowding have increased. That's what's crazy, too, is the amount of people that are on the mountain at one time looking to summit like you you might have to wait for another group to summit before you can even go up there's that many people on on the mountain at any given time but today we're going to be looking at an incident that happened in the may 1996 climbing season one of everest's busiest at the time at this particular time the spring 1996 season was the deadliest in everest history 12 people died that season trying to reach the summit today it's the third deadliest season in Everest history. So today we'll be looking at the infamous May 10th to 11th disaster that claimed the lives of eight people. Four groups had expeditions to summit during this disaster. Climbers had paid as much as $65,000 each in order to make the climb. So one of the groups for the May 10th expedition was from the company Adventure Consultants, and it consisted of 19 people, including eight clients. And the leader of the Adventure Consultants expedition was Rob Hall the company's owner. And Rob was a highly experienced mountaineer who had summited Everest at least five times or five times in the past. And he also completed the seven summits in just seven months, average of one per month. Pretty wild. So naturally, Rob had an amazing reputation as an Everest guide. There were also two other guides. One was 37-year-old Mike Groom, an Australian climber, and he was a former plumber originally from Brisbane. And at the time, he climbed Everest more than any other Australian. In 1987, Mike actually developed frostbite in his toes, which looks so brutal. And that happened while he was descending Kinchinjunga, the third highest mountain in the world. His frostbite was so bad that both of his feet had to be partially amputated. But that did not slow Mike down, and he still loved to climb. True adventurer. In 1991, Mike had actually survived an avalanche on the Lhotse face with only a broken nose and a few cracked ribs. He had fallen over 3,000 feet, so he was very lucky to have survived and even luckier to have only relatively minor injuries. After 3,000 feet? Insane. Oh my God. I know, and nothing stopped him. The other adventure consultant's guide was 31-year-old Andy Harris, a climber from New Zealand, He was very caring and a selfless person. He would help anyone without question, and he had a very strong sense of loyalty and duty to others. The legendary Ang Dorji was the Sirdar for the Adventure Consultants Expedition. The Sirdar is the head Sherpa of a climbing expedition who has the most experience and is typically fluent in English. 
Aang led a team of seven other Sherpas, and throughout all of his expeditions, Aang worked tirelessly to help other climbers. One of the adventure consultant's clients is a name you'll probably recognize, the legendary writer and mountaineer, John Krakauer, who famously authored Into the Wild. He joined the expedition on assignment from Outside Magazine. He was an experienced technical climber, but he did not have experience mountaineering on peaks higher than 8,000 meters. His original plan was to hike up to base camp for a story on people who pay for Everest expeditions, and that would be it. But he was enchanted by the idea of fulfilling his childhood dream to climb Mount Everest. So he put the story off for a year to train and summit the mountain in May 1996. John joining the Adventure Consultants team was part of a business deal Outside Magazine made with Rob Hall. In exchange for advertising space, Outside's fee for John's spot on the expedition was lowered to less than cost. This meant that Rob was paying out of pocket for John to be there. Do you think that because of this, um, it could have put pressure on Rob to have the whole team summit? Like Probably. Because so, he's like, you're not going all this way just to yeah. get 100 feet from summit. No, that's a good point. Probably did. Doug Hansen, a 46-year-old postman from Seattle, was another one of the Adventure Consultants' clients. In 1995, he had previously attempted Everest with one of Rob's teams, but he collapsed and had to turn back only a few hundred feet from the summit. Doug had worked the night shift and side jobs for months to save up for the trip. So another Adventure Consultants' client was Yasuko Namba, a quiet 47-year-old Japanese businesswoman who had climbed six of the seven summits. And her focus was impeccable. She was a very driven person. And she was also a very small person. She weighed just 91 pounds. So a lot of her gear was lighter because her body couldn't carry the heavier stuff. But she was tough and she was double her weight when it comes to determination. Another client was 49-year-old Beck Weathers. And he had 10 years of climbing experience. He was a pathologist from Texas who loved mountaineering. Other AC clients included Frank Fishbeck, Stuart Hutchinson, Luke Sischke, and John Tasky. Frank had attempted Everest three times before. Stuart was the youngest client in the group and had previous 8,000-meter experience. Australian John Tasky was the oldest client and had no 8,000-meter experience. And Lou had climbed six of the seven summits. Meanwhile, there was also an expedition planned by the company Mountain Madness, It'd be led by Scott Fisher, the 40-year-old owner of the company. Scott had summited Everest once before in 1994 without the use of supplemental oxygen. He was both a friend and friendly competitor of Rob Hall's. And this is pretty impressive because I looked it up and from what I found, only roughly like 200 people have summited Everest without supplemental oxygen. Just fucking crazy to think about. Yeah, that is. Yeah, it's badass. I mean, definitely one way to stand out, right? you yeah. may actually make it up and down challenge yourself even more here's scott fisher talking in may 1996 at base camp describing his mission this is going to be the biggest mountain on earth for a long long time so there's going to be more and more people visiting it all the time commercial expedition uh it's my livelihood and i hope that i can do a good job for people um i started out my business mountain madness to have fun to support my lifestyle um, my mission statement would be to turn people onto the mountains. And if someone's goal is to climb Mount Everest and they're willing to really work hard for it and pay their dues, I'd sure like to be the one to help them get there. You know, for people that have paid me, it's pretty much my job to, I guess, number one, keep them alive. And um, number two, to do everything we can to get them to the summit. 
The head guide of this expedition was 38-year-old Anatoly Bukriv, a Soviet and Kazakhstani elite mountaineer. He had previously summited Everest without oxygen, and for this expedition, he'd gotten permission from Scott Fisher to summon again without supplemental oxygen. Then there was guide Neil Bideman, a professional mountaineer from Aspen, Colorado. He was an experienced and accomplished climber, but this trip to the Everest summit would be his first. The Sirdar for the Mountain Madness expedition was 23-year-old Lopsong Jongbu. He led a team of seven Sherpas. Lopsong had summited Everest three times without oxygen in the past. One of the clients was 41-year-old Sandy Hill Pittman, a wealthy New York socialite, mountaineer, and press journalist for NBC. She had attempted Everest two times before and climbed six of the seven summits. Other clients included climber Martin Adams, Aspen ski instructor Charlotte Fox and Tim Madsen, Danish mountaineer Lena Gamelgaard, and Colorado dentist Dale Cruz. They were also joined by American mountaineer Pete Schoening, who is known for single-handedly saving the lives of six climbers during a mass fall on K2 in 1953. His nephew, former U.S. national downhill ski racer Clev Schoening, came along as well. And just for reference, K2 is the second highest mountain that lies between China and Pakistan. And this specific team reached a high point of 7,750 meters, but were trapped by a storm in their camp where a team member, Art Gilkey, became seriously ill. And they desperately tried to get back down the mountain, um, but unfortunately all but one of the climbers were nearly killed in the fall. There was also an expedition organized by the Indo-Tibetan Border Police and a Taiwanese expedition of five led by climber Makalu Gaumingho. For the Border Police group, this expedition would be the first Indian ascent of Everest from the north side. So the three groups stayed at the base camp to acclimate for three weeks. And then from there, it would take them about five days to go from the base camp to the summit. And their tentative summit bid day was May 10th. So Pete, a Mountain Madness client, decided at the base camp that he would not make the final push to the summit. The Mountain Madness team began their climb to the summit on May 6th. The group bypassed Camp 1 and stopped for two nights at Camp 2. Dale, a Mountain Madness client, started to suffer from altitude sickness and possible high-altitude cerebral edema. So he stopped at Camp 1. Scott came down from Camp 2 and helped Dale back to base camp to be treated. Then on May 8th, while climbing, a small television-sized boulder struck Andy in the chest. The incident was shocking, but it didn't injure him too badly, so he continued to climb. On May 9th, the teams made it to Camp 3. That day, Taiwanese team member Chen Yunin slipped and fell down a crevice on the Lhotse face. He assured his team members he was fine, though. His plan was to rest for a little bit before heading up to Camp 4. The Sherpas tended to Chen, but by the afternoon, he was in poor health. The Sherpas radioed down for assistance, but by the time help arrived, Chen had sadly passed away. The Sherpas were very superstitious about death on the mountain, so they asked the responding climbers to take Chen's body down. Meanwhile, the groups had made it up to Camp 4 and settled in for a few short hours of sleep. But that night was a living hell, with bad weather at Camp 4. The climbers were worried that they wouldn't be able to summit the mountain after all that work. But at 8 p.m., the weather seemed to calm down, and the climbers were able to get a little sleep before it was time to get ready to summit. So at 11 p.m., the climbers hopped out of their sleeping bags and suited up for that fateful climb. It was finally time to make the final ascent. 
And so just after midnight on May 10th, 1996, a line of eager climbers started up the mountain, their headlamps glowing in the dark and silent of night. Here's some footage of the climbers describing how they felt during that initial ascent. You get out, you stand up, and it's a different world than the one you saw when you came in because the night is gorgeous, the wind is still, you can see more stars than you ever dreamed that a place could have, and they're so close to you that you feel like you can touch them. In front of us is this great silhouette, the, the blackness of Everest, and the Milky Way was just on fire. It was like a, like a row of lights above us. It was a vast, open sky. But there, on the mountain, I could see the headlamps of Rob Hall's team. And I was worried that we might be behind before we'd even started. When you climb at night, much more so than the day, you feel like you're alone. And then as you look up and you look down, you don't see the vistas. You see these little cones scattered along in a line of the people that are all strung out as part of this silent progression of individuals, each one in their own world, separated from everyone else in their team, separated from everyone else on Earth. You start to get in rhythm with your oxygen. You get your headlight adjusted just right and jiggle your pack around and you feel your body start to come alive and, you know, the blood flowing and, you know, you're, you're climbing Mount Everest. It's a, it's a pretty cool feeling. I can't relate. No part of me wants to experience that. Right. I feel like my body do the opposite of coming alive. I feel like. Yeah. Especially at night. It does look beautiful up there. Yeah, hearing hearing the, the stargazing was mm-hmm. top notch. You see the Milky Way, that'd be cool. No, on top of the night, mountain. get out of your sleeping bag, go out in the snow. I don't know. I could never. Could never. So a few hours later, as climbers made their way towards the balcony, the sun started to rise over the peaks. But when climbers reached the balcony, they started running into issues. For one, the guides and the Sherpas had forgotten to set up fixed ropes in advance. This caused a delay that lasted about an hour. It's still a matter of debate as to whose failure this was, but it will likely stay a mystery. Also, Beck Weathers realized at this point that he wouldn't be able to summit. His right eye was pretty much blurred over due to snow blindness, which is basically sunburn on your eyes. Sounds terrible. And his left eye also wasn't in good enough shape to press on. Beck told Rob about this issue, and Rob offered to have some Sherpas escort him back down to camp. Obviously, Beck didn't want to turn back now. He'd already made it this far. So Rob made him promise to stay put and wait until he made it back to descend. Beck told him, Rob, cross my heart, hope to die. I'm sticking. The rest of the climbers pressed on, but by the time they reached the Hillary Step, once again they saw that no fixed line had been placed in advance which has caused another hour-long delay while the lines were set up. The guides had asked the climbers to keep a 500-foot distance in between one another, and there were 33 climbers trying to summit that day. So both of these conditions, plus the two hours of delays, caused a bottleneck at the Hillary Step. And this bottleneck created some issues. Climbers had to go up the steep vertical rock face one by one, and given the conditions, the step is a difficult and time-consuming climb. So this meant all the climbers had to sit and wait for others to go up, which wasted precious oxygen. And those delays made Stuart, Lou, and John Taskey realize that they wouldn't make it to the top by 1 p.m. 
they worried that they wouldn't have enough oxygen to ascend and climb back down again, so they decided not to summit and go back to Camp 4. Here's the three of them actually talking about their decision to do that. I looked at my watch and I had a sick feeling inside of myself. This is the way I was feeling. I was feeling sick at that point because I knew I knew it was impossible to get there by the 1 p.m. turnaround time. And I thought, if I keep going now, I'll be out of oxygen, get to the summit, but I'll be coming back down to the South Col in the dark and without oxygen and more tired than I am now. The risks were escalating. My heart was beating so hard, I felt like it was going to jump right out of my chest. I almost shaking as I was struggling inside of myself with, what am I going to do? Am I going to keep going because I'm so close, or am I going to turn around? At that stage, Rob came up past me, and I said to him, Rob, I'm going down. And I could even see behind his oxygen mask, he was visibly disappointed, probably for me, because he loved to get people to achieve their goal of getting to the top. But he said, it's your call, pal. Didn't say mate like an Australian. It's your call, pal. I'll see you back at the South Col. And that was the last time I saw Rob alive. They were obviously incredibly disappointed at the time. Imagine getting so close and not making it to the top. But as we'll see, this decision was ultimately very prudent and arguably saved their lives. The three of them, accompanied by Sherpas, passed Beck around noon, and they offered to have him descend with them. But Beck told them he was staying put. He'd promised Rob that he'd wait for him, and the weather looked fine at this point. So meanwhile, some climbers had to wait hours at the step, but everyone was still so determined to make it to the top, even as bad weather loomed. This is partly because of something called summit fever. It's the drive that climbers have to get to the top, especially when the summit is in view. This causes them to ignore life-threatening conditions and push on towards their goal. Even guides are at risk of this since their goal is to get as many people to the top as possible. Anatoly was the first to the summit that day at 1.07 p.m., and he was able to do it without supplemental oxygen. At around 1.12 p.m., John made it to the summit, and Andy followed close behind him. The three of them stood on top, on top of the world pretty much, taking in the blue skies and plentiful sunshine. John snapped four photos of the two guides. After taking a photo with the flag of Anatoly's native Kazakhstan, he spent the next hour and a half helping clients finish the climb. But John was cold and tired. The lack of oxygen reduced his brain functioning to that of a child. So after only about five minutes at the summit, John headed back down at 1.17 p.m. John turned around and took a few steps before he decided to snap another photo. It was a shot looking down at the southeast ridge, the route that they ascended on. John focused the camera on Neil and client Martin Adams, who were approaching the summit. But as he snapped this photo, John noticed something off. The skies there had been clear an hour before, but now a blanket of clouds was moving across the south, covering the lower peaks around Everest. John didn't realize the danger at first. His oxygen-starved brain thought the clouds were of no threat, and they weren't as concerned as he made his way down. Instead, he was worried about his oxygen, which was now almost out. At 1.25 p.m., Neil made it to the summit. One by one, clients started arriving and joined the celebration. They'd finally done it. Here's how they describe the summit. 
But soon enough, we were joining the celebration up there and looking down the north side and looking down the west and the east and the south, and we could see it all. We were on the roof of the world. You can almost see the curvature of the earth. I know you can't, but you can feel that you're up high enough that you're looking down on the sphere. All the hardships that you've gone through and all the discomfort you've been through is completely worth it at that moment. What I really felt was a massive, massive contentment and sort of a feeling of everything falling into place. Fifteen minutes after John began his descent, he arrived at the top of the Hillary Step. A group of climbers were still trying to make their way up, so now John had to wait for the line to clear before he could descend. Andy Harris had left the summit shortly after John, so when he made it to the top of the step, John asked him to turn his oxygen valve off so he could save what he had left. So Andy did that, or so he thought. For the next ten minutes, John felt his head clear. He thought this was odd considering his oxygen was now off, but he was thankful for the relief anyway. But after those ten minutes, John suddenly felt his vision go, and his head spin. He was about to lose consciousness. As it turned out, Andy was hypoxic, or oxygen-starved. That in his confusion, he'd turned John's oxygen valve to full blast, so he'd accidentally caused John to waste all of his remaining oxygen. Now, as you can imagine, he was very anxious to get down, but he still had to wait for the line of climbers to get up the Hillary step. At 2.30 p.m., Anatoly decided to descend alone without any other clients. Once he got to the Hillary step, he passed John, who was still waiting on other climbers to clear the step. Anatoly's reasoning for going down when he did was because he wanted to be ready to assist those coming back to camp. One by one, they slowly made it up the ridge. Towards the back of the group was Yasuko and Rob Hall. Later, John saw that Doug Hansen had finally made it to the step. Scott Fisher was bringing up the rear. And he greeted John with his typical cheer, but he looked like he was in rougher shape. When John asked if he was okay, he said he was fine, just moving a bit slower for some reason. Finally, once Scott made it up, John quickly rappelled down and continued towards camp. Everyone who'd reached the summit so far was still celebrating. Yasuko had finally completed her mission. She became the oldest woman to summit Everest at the time and the second Japanese woman to reach all seven summits. Huge accomplishment. The climbers were going to wait for Fisher to summit so they could descend as a group. At 2.30 p.m., Rob Hall radioed to the AC base camp from the summit. He informed Helen Wilton, his base camp manager, that he would wait at the summit until Doug Hansen made it up there. He was apparently just in Rob's sight. Then they'd quickly turn around and head back down. It was odd to the other guides that Rob, who had been so strict about the cutoff time before, was waiting for Doug instead of ordering him to turn around. This was maybe because Doug was determined to make it to the top. He'd saved up so much money for this trip and Rob had turned him around on his last attempt when he was only a few hundred feet from the summit. Mike and Yasuko stayed at the summit for another five or ten minutes after this call. After snapping some photos, they also started to make their way down. At 3 p.m., Andy, John, and Mike arrived at the South Summit, about 330 vertical feet below the true summit. There were fresh oxygen bottles there waiting for them, and by this point, Scott and Lopsong had made it to the South Summit as well, but they were still ascending, and Scott was now having trouble standing. Lopsong decided to short rope him to keep him moving. Short roping is basically when one climber uses a small portion of the rope to lead another through terrain, keeping the climbers moving and preventing slips and falls. And at this point, snow had begun to fall. As the clouds rolled in, daylight became more and more scarce. It became hard for John to see. 
And by this point, Scott was just taking too long for Neil's comfort. He was concerned about the group's oxygen supply. So at 3.12 p.m., he ordered the group to descend immediately. And after Robin Ang waited an hour for Doug, who still hadn't summited, they decided to meet him down the ridge. They eventually found him above the Hillary step, and they told Doug to descend, but Doug didn't want to do that. Here's what happened when Doug saw Aang. I was in front of Rob Hall. I told Rob Henson, okay, it's late. It's now bad weather. We're going to down. But Doug Henson, he didn't talk to me. He just shake his head, and then he's pointing his finger and summit. Aang, Dorji, and I offered to take Doug up Rob told me, okay. I don't want to leave glance behind you guys. Go ahead. You go ahead. Leave oxygen bottle and so summit. Go down. From the south summit, I recall looking back along this Razorback Ridge to the Hillary Step. I saw Rob Hall standing up and Doug Hansen leaning into the slope, resting on his ice axe. I remember giving the normal thumbs up sign like that and I got the same response from the person I thought was Rob Hall and that indicated to me that everything was okay and it was time to continue the the descent. So at one point as the clients are hiking down Sandy collapsed but luckily Charlotte was carrying dexamethasone which is a steroid that can help treat acute mountain sickness So she quickly injected Sandy with it, and they continued to press on, but the delay cost them time. And by this point, Scott was still on his way up. He was becoming more and more ill, possibly suffering from hape or haste. He finally made it to the summit at 3.45 and started down the summit at 3.55, nearly two hours after the cutoff time of 2 p.m. Finally, sometime after 4 p.m., Doug made it to the summit. He and Rob didn't stay for long before they began their descent into the storm. It was now over two hours past the 2 p.m. cutoff time to descend. They didn't get far before they ran into trouble while they were still high on the summit ridge. At 4.30 p.m. and again at 4.41, Rob radioed down for help. He said that they were out of oxygen and needed fresh bottles urgently. Rob knew that Aang had placed fresh oxygen bottles for them at the south summit, but he was struggling to get Doug down the step. Rob could get down himself, but he couldn't get both him and his client down the 40-foot vertical drop without oxygen. Anatoly made it back to Camp 4 at 5 p.m. Around this time, Andy left Camp 4 to assist Rob and Doug. The conditions were dangerous and Andy was in a hypoxic state. But even still, he had a deep sense of loyalty and wanted to help his friend. Rob continued to try and get Doug down the step. Also at 5 p.m., Mike and Namba made it to the balcony. The weather had continued to deteriorate. So the snow and winds were very strong. At this point, Mike and Namba found Beck. He was nearly blind and he'd been waiting in that spot for Rob since 6.30 a.m. Imagine sitting there all day, basically. The three immediately descended together. 15 minutes later, Rob called base camp and told Helen that Doug was weak. He lost consciousness and couldn't move. And in those conditions, Rob physically couldn't carry him. So they were stuck and the situation was serious. Guy Cotter, one of the base camp team members, suggested that Rob make his way to the base camp himself so he could assist with rescue operations. And sadly, this would mean leaving Doug behind because it seemed 
unlikely that he would make it off the mountain alive anyway. But Rob was almost annoyed at this suggestion. He made it sound like he was going to stay with Doug. And from then on, base camp didn't hear from Rob for another 12 hours. So Neil and five of the Mountain Madness clients made it to the balcony at 520, but they're quickly becoming fatigued and delirious due to lack of oxygen. And the storm was just getting worse. Mike and Neil eventually had to tether Yasuko and drag her towards Camp 4. She was so exhausted and just couldn't walk. By 5.30 p.m., the weather conditions had turned into a full-blown blizzard. 70-mile-an-hour winds and the snow pellets were like stinging them. The blizzard buried the fixed ropes that had been placed and any trails that the groups had walked during their ascent. And this is when things took a truly horrible turn. Makalu, a member of the Taiwanese expedition, was trying to make his way down the balcony with a group of Sherpas, but they couldn't find the trail. The Sherpas told Makalu that they'd find the ropes and then come back for him, but they couldn't make it back to find him, so they had to continue on to the tents. Now, Makalu was alone, a thousand feet from Camp 4, but then he spotted Scott nearby. It was too late, though. Scott soon collapsed and was too weak to carry on. By 5.40, John was about 200 yards away from Camp 4. He could see Andy stumbling towards the tents. John made it back to his tent 20 minutes later. By 8 p.m., Neil, Mike, and their clients were very disoriented. The storm had become so strong that it was blowing hurricane-force winds across the mountain, and the snow wouldn't let up. So the group couldn't find Camp 4, and for the next two hours, the group was hopelessly lost, wandering around the South Call, trying to find their tents. Here's some of those climbers talking about the situation. And as you move further and you become more disoriented, and the entire time that you're doing this, the storm, the wind, the snow, the cold, everything is just is moving, it's crescendoing. And now it's it's the noise level is starting to overwhelm you, and you got to yell at each other to be heard at all. And I don't know whether we're, we're getting a sense of just being led like sheep. And then we just became hopelessly lost. I recall the ice and the snow stinging my face, freezing my eyelids together to a point where I have to, to, to sort of break the ice off my eyelids to be able to see, and tripping over rocks and on the south coal, picking up Beck when he did the same because he fell over quite a lot. I had no idea where we were going. I knew enough, though, to keep track of uh, Mike Groom's arm, because I thought if I let go of him uh, and I got three feet away, I wouldn't have any idea where anybody was. People who have all run out of oxygen, some of them uh, really starts collapsing. And those of us who are still able to walk, try to sort of, you know, pick them up, make them keep walking. And surviving in the mountain is to keep moving, never, ever stop. We all felt that camp was close and we couldn't figure out why we had not stumbled upon it. We had passed discarded oxygen tanks, pots and pans, ripped fabric of tents. We knew we were right there. So, so, God, cannot imagine being in that situation. I think, I think the whole concept of if you stop moving, mm-hmm. you're done. Like yep. You got to keep moving. So that's why they keep picking their buddies up after they collapse to the ground because they know mm-hmm. that it's only a matter of time before they're not getting back up. The storm, though, continued to rage on and it just wouldn't let up. And the climbers back at Camp 4 
were worried that they wouldn't survive the night. Here's a clip of Lou actually talking about the storm. When I got back to camp, I crawled inside the tent. That is so brutal, man. Yeah. And the next thing I remember was the feeling like somebody was shoving me. Doesn't hearing that just make you feel cold? Totally. I'm scared. But the thoughts were, why isn't anybody here? Why am I alone? Truly terrifying. And I could hear nothing. It was the wind that was moving me around, like shoving me and pushing me. And, uh, and it was terrifying. I felt lonely. I, w- I wanted to say goodbye. I wanted to say, I love you one more time. I, I didn't want to die alone. It was uh, something that I never knew about myself would be important to me to be dying, separated from the people I love and who love me. That's really heartbreaking to think about. What would you even do in those moments? I just would imagine the sense of fear and the panic that would overcome you is just, I mean, to even keep yourself going at that point Mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And I mean, remember these are hurricane force winds. So you're, I mean, what do you have like a thin piece of fabric for a tent around you? And other than that, you're just getting bashed around inside of it, hoping that you survive. Yeah. You're just going off the will to live at that point. I wouldn't have the strength. I know I would never make it through something like this. I, I don't think any of us think we would until you'd be in that situation and you're fighting for Yeah, I guess that's you true. know chance to see your loved ones again. I think most people find courage in those moments, you know, when yeah. it's hard. With, you're you know, so miserable, so uncomfortable, scared, a lot of it's almost feels easier to just like give up, you know. But you can't got to keep fighting after two hours of searching neil and mike's group realized that they were just too lost not only that but they were barely able to move and they were out of oxygen so at 10 p.m they huddled together for warmth at a spot 30 feet from kang shung face and little did they know though that the group was actually only 350 yards from camp so they were that close Mm -hmm. right there but the conditions were becoming nearly unbearable the group knew they were close to death Charlotte didn't think she would make it through the night, and she said all she wanted to do was die. But Sandy was about to lose it. She didn't want to die on that mountain. And of course, they knew if they fell asleep, they were pretty much dead. So they tried their hardest to stay awake, even though it seemed easier, like I said, to let go. Beck even started shoving and hitting Yasuko to help keep her conscious and keep her blood flowing. Meanwhile, Makalu was further up the mountain, trying desperately to stay awake. He shouted, Makalu, don't sleep. Makalu, don't sleep. He was shouting so hard, he said his body was shaking. He punched himself and even tried dancing to keep his limbs moving. And then at one point, he kicked something. And it was Scott Fisher. And Scott weakly groaned, I'm sick. I'm sick. But Makalu knew there was nothing he could do to help him. It was too late. So sometime around midnight, the sky started to clear up and the stars became visible. And the stars would help some of the group navigate back to Camp 4 to get help. So at 12 a.m., Neil, Mike, Lena, and Clev hiked down to camp. They left behind Tim, Charlotte, Sandy, Yasuko, and Beck. Those who stayed behind weren't strong enough to stand up. 
on their own. Neil had tried to drag Beck and Yasuko down with him, but neither could stand. Yasuko just kept falling. He didn't want to leave her, but he didn't have much of a choice. Neil felt her hand slip away, and he walked forward without looking back. The memory of having to leave her haunts him to this day. Nobody knows what Rob, Andy, and Doug were doing at this point. But at some point, though, it is believed that Doug slipped and fell down the southwest face, somewhere below the step, to his death. At 12.44 a.m., Neil, Mike, and the others made it to Camp 4. There they found Anatoly, and they sent him up to rescue the others. One by one, he brought the climbers back to the tents. The others were waiting with hot tea to warm them up. Yosuko appeared to be too close to death, and Anatoly couldn't see Beck. Anatoly wanted to come back and try to save them, but he knew he probably would have died if he did. None of the climbers had enough strength to go back. But by 5 a.m., everyone else in that huddle was safe back at Camp 4. When Neil found out that Yosuko had died, he sobbed in his tent for 45 minutes. Meanwhile, Beck laid in the snow, and he felt himself starting to die. I can't imagine that feeling. He said he couldn't feel any pain or discomfort anymore. All he could feel was a sense of calm detachment, and everything started slowly fading to black. Finally, at 4.43 a.m., Rob made it to the South Summit. The winds and snow had reached hurricane strength at this point. Rob was badly hypothermic and frostbitten, making him far too weak to move. So he decided to hunker down and wait for a rescue team. He radioed down to base camp once again and told them to come get him. His legs weren't working and he couldn't walk anymore. He said that Andy was missing and Doug was gone. And when he told Helen that he was at the South Summit, her heart sank. Rob had once told her, if you were stuck on the South Summit, you might as well be stuck on the moon. But Rob also informed them that Andy had been with him that night. He asked the base camp team if they knew where he was, but nobody had seen him. By 6 a.m., Andy still hadn't made it back to Camp 4, but his steps from the night before could literally be retraced from his crampon prints. They showed that he'd come within 50 feet of the tents before veering towards the Lotse face. Sadly, it appeared that in his hypoxic state, he'd accidentally walked off a 4,000-foot drop. At 8.30 a.m., three Sherpa teams set out to find Scott and other survivors. Aang and some other Sherpas eventually found Yosuko and Beck. And sadly, Yosuko had not survived the night. And when they found Beck, his cheek was stuck frozen to the snow. They couldn't see his face and they thought he died too. The Sherpas radioed down to base camp and gave them the news. And someone at the base camp called Beck's wife back in the States and told her her husband had died. Here's John Tasky talking about the decision to leave Yosuko and Beck on the mountain. The decision to leave Beck and Yasuko where they were was not really a difficult decision with probably partly my medical background, but also what we'd been through the night before was, uh, this was horrific. To see Mike come in very close to death, my estimate would have been at half an hour and Mike would not have been able to move. And here were these other people exposed to phenomenal winds, at least 80 miles an hour, 20, 30 below zero, all night. We thought it was kinder to leave them rather than cause them pain even in a semi-conscious state by dragging them over to where we were. They were basically dead. 10 a.m. Sherpas made it to Scott, but it was too late. They couldn't wake him no matter how hard they tried. And because of the storm and high winds, they couldn't bring his body back down to camp. Lopsung tied his body to the mountain so he could be recovered later. 
Luckily, though, Makalu had kept himself alive by moving throughout the night. The Sherpas were able to bring him down to Camp 4 safely. Now it was time to find Rob. The Sherpas started making the climb to him, but when they reached the southeast ridge, it became too dangerous to go any further. Here are some of the team members describing this heartbreaking situation. It was still blowing and hard to see, hard to find a path. We both decided we may not reach there or we may something going to be happening for us too. They were very upset that they had not been able to, to get up to Rob. They tried their hardest, but these guys were very exhausted. I was so sad. I came all the way up there to help Rob, but I didn't meet him. I had to return close to by him. They were about 100 vertical metres below him and they had to turn around and they left some tea in the hope that Rob might possibly get to it. But when I heard that news, I was in tears and Guy had to speak and tell Rob. That was a very hard call to make, to have to tell your friend and uh, long-time climbing partner that the rescue that would, would save his life was no longer coming. Nobody can come. That day, it's already late. He has been already one night spent outside there. And then, uh, yeah, I already thought when we left, he's going to die. So at this point, everyone thought that Beck had perished in the storm alongside Yusuko. But incredibly, at 4.30 p.m., the survivors were shocked to see Beck stumbling towards their camp. He was hallucinating, severely frostbitten, and he couldn't see more than four feet in front of him. But he was alive. Rob Hall realized he was not going to make it down the mountain. So he radioed for someone at Camp 4 to call his wife in New Zealand with a sat phone who was pregnant at the time with their unborn child. At 6.20 p.m., he was patched through to his wife, fellow climber, Jan Arnold. Rob reassured his wife that he was comfortable, and they both decided on a name for their daughter, Sarah. His last words to his wife were, Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. And this was the last time anyone heard him speak. All attempts to reach him via radio went unanswered after that. Anatoly made another rescue attempt to find Scott at 7 p.m., but when he got to Scott, sadly, he had already passed away. By the end of the day, half of the Indo-Tibetan Border Police Expedition team had perished on the Northeast Ridge. Their names were Suwang Samunla, Dorje Morup, and Suwang Peljor. The survivors stayed to recuperate at Camp 4 until the morning of the 12th. That morning, Mike Groom went to each tent to get the climbers ready to descend, but nobody had told Mike that Beck made it back to camp. Beck had been put in a tent by himself, and when he passed by Beck's tent, he saw the back door was open and a pair of climbing boots were sticking out. A sleeping bag was draped over the person's upper body and head as if they were dead, so Mike believed that whoever it was hadn't survived the night. So once again, Beck was left for dead. The group began to descend the mountain without him. He realized what was happening and started to call for help, and luckily one of the last climbers at the camp heard Beck's calls and saved his life once again, healthy climbers from other groups were able to bring Beck Weathers down to camp too, where he was still clinging to life. The Nepalese military managed to pull off a risky, high-altitude helicopter rescue to rescue Beck from there. Finally, the surviving climbers arrived at base camp. They were injured and traumatized, 
but it was an absolute miracle that they were still alive. The bodies of Andy Harris and Doug Hansen have never been found. Scott Fisher's body, which Lopsong had tied to the mountain, is still on the mountain today. His family requested that his body be left there so he can rest in the mountains he loved so dearly. Rob Hall's body was found by climbers working on the IMAX film that we had mentioned at the beginning of the episode on May 23rd, 1996. Rob's wife, Jan Arnold, asked that his body be left on the mountain as it would have been what he would have wanted. His body stayed on the south summit for a short time until it fell 12,000 feet to the base of the mountain. What's really cool, though, is that his daughter, Sarah, actually grew up to be a climber herself and ended up climbing Mount Kilimanjaro at age 15. Whoa, no way. That's impressive. That's so badass. Right? How cool. What a cool way to honor her father. Totally. Anatoly located the body of Yasuko Namba in April of 1997, and to protect her from scavenging birds, he built a cairn around her, and he apologized to her husband for not being able to save her. Later that year, Yasuko's husband funded an expedition to have her body recovered and brought back to Japan. The body of one of the Indian climbers still sits on the mountain today. The body has sort of served as a marker for climbers nicknamed Green Boots. Many believe that the body belongs to Suwong Paljor, but some believe the body belongs to Dorje Morup. The two other bodies have never been found. Beckweathers survived, but he lost his right hand and part of his right forearm as well, the fingers on his left hand and his nose. Makalu lost toes and all fingers on both hands and his nose. Statistically speaking, the 1996 climbing season was not particularly deadly given the number of people who summited and made it back down. And based on these numbers, it was actually a season with an unusually low number of fatalities. John Krakauer wrote a book about the disaster titled Into Thin Air. It was a bestseller, but it was also a very controversial book due to its portrayal of Anatoly. It sparked a bitter back and forth between the two camps. John criticized Anatoly for not using bottled oxygen and descending the summit before anyone else did. Anatoly later collaborated on the book The Climb, which provided a rebuttal to Into Thin Air. These rebuttals would continue on back and forth until 1997. Lopsung also wrote a response to Into Thin Air, defending himself against the book's criticisms of him. Later, Lopsung Zhangbu died in an avalanche while climbing Mount Everest in September of 1996. In 1997, the American Alpine Club awarded Anatoly with the David A. Sowles Memorial Award for his rescue efforts during the May 1996 tragedy. The following year, Anatoly Bukhriv died in an avalanche while climbing Mount Annapurna on December 25, 1997. His fate was foretold in a vision nine months before his death. Anatoly had a detailed dream of dying in an avalanche. Anatoly was convinced that this was a prophecy. He told one of his friends about the dream, and the friend tried to convince him to take a different path in life to avoid this fate. But Anatoly was still undeterred. He told his friend, quote, Mountains are my life, my work. It is too late for me to take up another road. So Adventure Consultants is actually still in business today, and according to their website, They'll take you up Everest for a low price of $73,000 USD. Mountain Madness is also still in business, and they'll take you up Everest at a cheaper price, $67,000 USD. The 1996 tragedy sparked debate on the commercialization and crowding of Mount Everest. With private tours becoming more and more popular, more and more people are looking to summit every season. And as we can see in this case, delays caused by traffic on the summit can be deadly. And these problems still exist today. Now, in a typical year, over 600 people successfully summit Everest. 
This is about half the number of people who attempt to summit the mountain. And today, summiting Everest has gone from a feat of strength, fortitude, discipline, and heroism to an exercise in bucket list checking for rich people, essentially. This is exactly the issue that many mountaineers worried about back in the 1990s with the rise of commercial expeditions. In fact, the problems on Everest have gotten bad enough that some climbers look down on those who take private expeditions. They believe that trying to climb Everest, in most cases, is no longer a noble pursuit. Many parts of the mountain now resemble a trash dump. It's littered with garbage, human waste, oxygen bottles, gear, and even bodies. The average climber produces about 18 pounds of waste on an expedition, and a lot of this gets left behind on the mountain. Bottled oxygen in particular leaves behind a lot of trash in the form of empty bottles. Heroic Sherpas and climbers have had to go on dangerous cleanup missions just to bring down some of the trash. Everest has gotten so crowded that traffic jams to the summit have formed. People have died running out of oxygen just waiting in line to get to the top. Let's take a look at the traffic jams on Everest. High up on Everest, the path to the peak clogged with climbers, as many as 200, dambling with their very lives. In this time-lapse video, you can see the headlamps of the climbers nearing the 29,000-foot peak. Looking up the Black Mountain, we can see at least 110 crystal glider, all in a vertical line going straight into the stars. But nowadays, I think some people are seeing the article, seeing the program, and trying to do it in 9, 10, 11 months. And uh, they throw themselves in at the deep end. Uh, that in itself is a recipe for disaster. I think it it could be accessible for everybody if they have the right skills to go and do it. What I find disappointing is when people want to go and climb Everest to bag it and brag it. Mountaineering shouldn't mm-hmm. be about that. It bag should it be about it. the challenge and the skills and the beauty of where you are and Being part of a close-knit small team for me is really important. Everest dangers are well known. The single deadliest ascent when eight people perished Mm -hmm. in 1996. When things start going wrong and the clock starts ticking away, that's when things can go wrong in a a big way and in a hurry. This year, there are just too many people on the mountain, making the treacherous trek to the top of the world that much more dangerous. That doesn't even look enjoyable at that point. No. can't believe some people have literally died just waiting in line. I'm surprised there's not a gondola. Or like a hot the dog stand. Yeah. Hot dog Somebody stand. selling hot chocolate would make a killing up there. Yeah, and just add to the, the waste and trashing of the mountain. <laughs> I agree. I think it's. I think this should be like a special situation yeah. for the most experienced people. I and like and I she... get it. It takes away from these people that dedicate their lives to this stuff. And then, yeah. you know, just some... Oh, totally. Some person has got money is like, oh, I want to go do it. And, you know, just to say that I did it and they can pay somebody to basically carry him up the mountain. I like that term. She used bag it and brag it. It's kind of like clout, you know? I guess. But where's that clout going? It's Social not like media. it's going to do that much for in you. Your bio and your, your Instagram bio. bio. I climbed Mount Everest. That's right. Mm-hmm. Get a nice mm. picture up there. Maybe a proposal on the mountain. I feel like, too, with technology, I think it's just going to get even easier to climb the mountain, you know, mm-hmm. like with oxygen oh, technology and things like that. Probably be like, you know, bring your kids up there. 
Bodies stay frozen on cliffs and mountainsides because rescue missions are often too difficult and often fatal. So mountaineers literally hike past dead bodies on their way up. And due to the human-caused climate change, the famous base camp on the Nepali side of Everest needs to be moved. That's because the glacier holding everything in place there is quickly melting. Also, the melting ice runoff from Mount Everest has been contaminated by the waste climbers leave behind, which threatens the water supply Nepali locals depend on. There's also questions about exploitation of the local Sherpas, the behind-the-scenes heroes who risk their lives getting people up the mountain. So Sherpas are paid significantly more than the average Nepali person, but a Western climbing guide there can expect to earn around $50,000 per season, while the average Sherpa will only make approximately $4,000, which is insane. And again, they risk their lives to take people up a mountain considered very sacred to them, and they don't get nearly enough recognition for the work they do. It's truly sad. So back in 2014, an avalanche on Everest killed 16 Sherpa climbers. The government gave the families a mere $400 in compensation, and many threatened to strike for the remainder of the 2014 season, which would put a sizable dent in Nepal's tourism revenue. Looking back at May of 1996, though, it's a day that will live in Mount Everest infamy. It was a sobering reminder for all who attempt to summit that they are at the mercy of the mountain. And we still remember all those who lost their lives in that tragedy. So, of course, we want to hear your thoughts on Everest. Would you ever consider climbing it? What do you think of people who still do it? And what are your overall thoughts on the brutal conditions that people go through to get to the top? It's honestly mind-blowing. Um, but, yeah. but most importantly, with this tragedy, we want to remember those who lost their lives, you know, people's families, loved ones were out there that day and mm -hmm. didn't make it back. And obviously the survivors of this this disaster have to live with, you know, all those horrific memories and, you know, both good and bad from, you know, that day on the mountain and, you know, all their past adventures together. And on that note, we want to leave you guys with an awesome memorial video that our editor James put together. We will see you guys next week. But until then, keep on taking your mind as high as Everest.